Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. This is episode 13, lucky number 13. We have Miss Floor Edwards today. Floor Edwards is an author. She lives in Los Angeles, California. By age 12, Floor had lived in 24 different locations across three continents, always on the move to escape the Antichrist and preparation for the apocalypse in 1993. Her nomadic childhood prompted her to pen her memoir, Apocalypse Child, A Life in End Times. In her debut memoir, Floor movingly describes her early life growing up with her family and 11 siblings as a member of the Children of God, a controversial religious movement that many describe as an apocalyptic cult. Please, please, please stick around for this amazing interview with Floor. It gives us a beautiful look into reintegration into society after such an experience. And it's a journey that we don't often hear. So I am really, really excited to have you guys listen to Floor. Feel free to Google her and you will see all sorts of interviews, um, including Dr. Oz and her various interviews on radios, other podcasts and television. And check out her book, Apocalypse Child, A Life in End Times, which can be purchased on Amazon. All right, guys, you're in for a good one. Episode 13, you know what's next. Let's do this. So, Flora, I want to welcome you to the podcast booth. So we've been talking about your story and, and growing up in a cult, and um, you have this amazing book talking about it, and um, you were in Children of God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I do want to get into, I want, you know, tell people about where, you know, what that was and what, what happened in your life, but I do want to get into how you recovered from Mm -hmm. that childhood. And I think that's something that isn't talked about as much. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. People want the shock and awe of the cult piece. But the healing piece to Mm -hmm. me is the fascinating part. So I'm really about that. So can you, I mean, you've you've talked about this a million times. So can you give us a a little bit of background on children of God and and what happened there? Well, now that we've started talking, it's almost like I want to start you want to start in the middle? Okay. Okay. Let's go backwards. It's hard for me to just go all, all the way, way back. And yeah. Especially if this is what we're going to talk okay, about. Okay. Okay. Let's start where you um, want to start. I we can s- start with, yeah, my family moved out to California. From? At, from Chicago. So we were in Chicago and my family moved out to California and I at some point realized that I had grown up in a in a cult. And yeah, it was very shocking for Like, me. did you know that word? So when I was little, they would actually practice drill us with right. questions like, did you grow up in – they used the word sect. And um, and we would – they would tell us how to answer because we would often be questioned or we, we would be prepared to be questioned because certain homes would have raids. So, you know, there was – But was it illegal? I mean, I read, I read it in your book. Like you guys would do these drills mm-hmm. in case the, you know, the homes were raided. Mm-hmm. But for what? 
So there was um, some practices that went on. There was um, some very free sexual beliefs. There was instances of child abuse, whether it was physical punishment or, again, instances of sexual abuse that happened more towards like the 1970s when the the 80s came around and a lot of the children started to be born and it became more of like a children rearing boot camp is what I called it. Right. But yeah, there were still instances, you know, because the leader had these very kind of experimental beliefs. um, And that's a whole I mean, that's a whole nother topic. It, It takes a lot just to explain. Yeah. What this man was trying to do. I mean, I just actually wrote a whole paper on it in one of my classes because it's 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 in some ways really fascinating. He was trying to break free of a lot of paradigms um, that he found to be very restricting. You right. know, so when it came, he was he was a religious man. His right. name was uh, David Brantberg. Um, so in my book, Apocalypse Child, I refer to him as Father David because he sort of thought he was kind of running this army. He called, you know, all his followers, you know, his family. So it was a very sort of community-based um, group and People dropped everything to follow him. And yeah, a big part of his allure was his radical beliefs. And those had to do with with sex, with love, with uh, child rearing, with education. He thought also he was very against capitalism. He thought the West was, you know, very evil and they were, you know, doomed. And and he also believed the world was ending. Right. So a big part of just our practical day-to-day life was based on this idea that we had no future. Right, 1993. 1993 was the date the world was supposed to end. I was born in 1981, and so I grew up my whole childhood never knowing that I would be an adult. Which is really fascinating, you know, what that, like, what if, you know, we all, (laughs) there are these conversations people have, like, what if you were to die tomorrow, Mm -hmm. right? Or, like, if Mm -hmm. your, your life were to end in a much shorter span of time, what mm-hmm. would you do at that time? Right, or like, right. what, how would you think about things? And you actually grew up in a scenario yeah. where it's like, okay, you only have your childhood. Like, what are you going to do with it? Or like, what's the mindset? What's interesting about Father David, what you talk about in Apocalypse Child, was his parents mm-hmm. were, I think his Evan. father, they were evangelists and he mm-hmm. he rebelled against mm-hmm. them. So he actually came from a long line of evangelists. So it was sort of like dating back like at least 100 years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. And um, coincidentally, it was also like this pattern of ostracization where right. they would rebel, you know, which I, yeah. get, I, th- I think is common. I don't think everyone just wants to go along with the status quo. And somehow he sort of came from this long um, lineage of religious people, but also rebels, kind of like religious rebels. But they they would each like indoctrinate the next Mm -hmm. generation, but then rebel against it. Kind of. And yeah, I found this out all through research. I didn't know much about this man growing up. I never saw him. I never knew what he looked like. But you knew he was your leader. I knew he wasn't just like leader. He was like God to us. Like we weren't allowed to speak against him. We weren't allowed to say anything um, it was considered blasphemous, but but yet we never like knew who he was. Who he was really, and I, when I started writing my book, I started to do a lot of research on yeah. him. Yeah. So you've lived in a ridiculous amount of places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they moved you all over, yeah. and I wonder: is your relationship in in order to have a nomadic lifestyle, you have to be more or less willing to give up a lot of stuff? It's hard to yeah. carry a lot of stuff with you. Was that having reintegrated into society now, is there, do you have weird relationships or struggles with things as representations of safety or stability or not, or you can't handle them? Or I think, honestly, the opposite, a little 
part of me is still detached from material things. Right. Um, I wish I was a little more kind okay. of like materialistic and like wanting things to, you know, identify with. But, you know, I have my basic needs and I'm yeah. good with that. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, growing up, yeah, we had like nothing. Like I had two pairs of pants, like shorts or skirts or whatever it was yeah. we wore in tropical countries. And and I had like two sets of clothing, clothes and that was really it, you know, yeah. aside from like a toothbrush. So yeah, we just, we lived with, within very little means and yeah, we were like on the escape from the Antichrist. So the leader was always like trying to figure out this one world leader that was going to rise to power. So that's why we were constantly moving and we were also kind of on the run. And I, again, I found this out later when I was little, it was kind of exciting and it was, you know, as unbelievable as it sounds, we were taught to believe that we were running from the Antichrist, the bad guys, you know, whatever yeah. story was was relayed to us. Um, but we were a little bit on the run from the law, you know, yeah. not not directly, but maybe indirectly. So I think the constant moving kept us difficult to find. So, I mean, the, sometimes in certain countries they would get raided, but for the most part, we would evade officials. Yeah. And you have 11 siblings? Mm-hmm. I'm the fourth oldest of 12. So of there's 12. 12 of us all together. Yeah. Wow. Because they, they didn't believe in birth control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they believed the world was ending. So they were trying to have as many kids sort of as an army for the end time, which was going to be coming soon. So what was the army supposed to do if the world was ending? Save people. Yeah. So I think that actually was one of the biggest things I had to heal from as okay. a child, okay. yeah, was this idea that I was responsible. Even now, I struggle as an adult, like when, when things happen, like yeah. I'm even going through this thing right now where I'm like, I assume everything's my fault. But I think that's what we do as humans, especially yeah. as women. Yes. We want to think that everything's our, our fault. And re- recently, I've just come to the realization that there's certain things that are completely out of my control. But as a child, the way the child's brain forms, you know, the things that are indoctrinated as a, as a, as for a young child, they're ingrained almost permanently. Yeah. Um. So for us, it was this it was this this narrative that was told to us that we we were responsible to save the entire world that we didn't even know about. You know, because wow. we lived within these walls, like right. we didn't even see the outside right, right, world. Right. Right. You guys were totally closed off in and yeah. in foreign countries. Yeah, but we were told that we were this this idea that we were the chosen, we were the right. special ones, we were the ones who were gonna you know lead people and only the people who were saved were the ones who were going to go to heaven and everyone else can go to hell. Um, So that was one part of, you know, my realization of this idea that I'm not responsible for the things that I thought I was responsible for as a child. Right. Yeah. Is there a feeling of like when you feel like a martyr or like is there a feeling of power or feeling of like responsibility in a positive way like when you were a kid? Or was it I just... I don't know. I think it was a lot of fear. Yeah. It was a, yeah. it was more fear than anything. Because yeah. um, I think they had to just keep on sort of regulating us. And so even though the story that was being told to us sounded very ho- heroic. And yeah. We were going to be these these heroes, basically. Right. That's what and it sounds like. Yeah. It, totally. Like, they would make cartoon pictures for us that made it look like we were, you know, these, these heroes. Right. But the day-to-day life of that was... A lot of fear and a lot of control and a lot of, you know, keeping us contained so that we didn't step out of line, so that we didn't arouse suspicion, so that no one inside the group would start to get curious about what was going on outside. So I would say it was more fear than excitement. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You talk about in Apocalypse Child, you talk about um, a moment where you're in Thailand and you are seeing a pregnant woman who is Mm. clearly being beaten by her Mm -hmm. husband or tells you and that you realize in that moment that she's neither good nor bad, that you and she are the same. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think I say um, she was she was not lost and she wasn't bad because we were taught that everyone outside of the group, they were either, either evil or they were lost. So we either had to save them or else we had to sort of, you know, they were going to hell. And I just had this encounter with this woman where I just realized she was just another person. Yeah. Um, and so that that memory really stood out, you know, in my mind. Like the like the were these like cracks in the story, like different mm-hmm. like cracks in mm-hmm. the story of what was being. Yeah. The narrative that was being told to us. I mean, starting at a fairly young age, I did start to have questions for sure, you know, but we weren't allowed to question. We definitely weren't allowed to voice them. So anything I did think about, I would just sort of keep inside. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I did have sisters that sometimes we would talk, but never would we talk about like leaving or, you know, we would just more, sometimes we would laugh about things or we would find light of situations. And that was sort of like our coping mechanism. Yeah. But yeah, we weren't allowed to question anything. Yeah. And you're an identical twin, which really excites me mm-hmm. because I have twin boys and um, I interesting how it's a curious experiment of you know two people going into the same situation and coming out and how does each person Mm -hmm. deal with it differently heal Mm -hmm. differently and I'm curious about you know we talk about in on this podcast we talk about narratives all the time Mm. because we are all in some sort of sect belief system, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. like yours happened to be very nomadic, very, you know, against the grain, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's, you know, more shocking. So, but we all have belief systems and narratives that go Mm -hmm. on and, you know, fear-based ideas Mm -hmm. and I'm responsible for this and it really guides us. And what do you think about the like reintegrating into society were there some big realizations that you had about like how people tell themselves stories Mm -hmm. or how people believe things or how people children come to believe things Mm -hmm. did you have any big realizations coming back in I always have big realizations (laughs) even now I mean that's why I continue to educate myself because it's the only way that I think I can cope with this right. crazy world that we live in, you know. Right. And I think it's not like my experience. I mean, my experience was very different, but all it did, it was heighten something that's already there. Right. That's right? what I mean. Like it's just, there's something, even though it's different, there are some similarities to it. Yeah. I mean, the truth is Father David was trying to escape something. And I, that's what I like to focus on is how these people were able to buy into this belief system right. if they weren't also trying to escape something. Right. And then for us, I guess the traumatic part was kind of being dumped into, into this world, but also having this very heightened awareness because aside from all the, you know, heroic end of the world narratives that we were being told, we were also being told things about how evil the world is. And it is very evil. Like, I mean, I'm even still figuring out stuff as an adult, you know, that... Right, me too. You know, you meet people, (laughs) you're like, oh my God, I really didn't know that evil does exist in this form. Right, and so So, does it ever kind of mess with your mind like... Was some of it real? Oh, was, oh constantly. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I, that's why I'm, I'm, I do want to write another book that's more picking apart what 
this thing was. And yeah, yeah, there's definitely, I think there's truth to everything. And I mean, even like I said, in my classes I'm taking, or I just finished taking, even this idea of sexual liberation, this isn't a new idea. This is something (laughs) that's been going on for hundreds of years, if not more, you know, and, you know, this idea of, of repression and, you know, and then the separation of, you know, religion from the body. This, right. this is not a new concept that Father David thought of. And I think I always say that it was just a massive social experiment gone yeah. wrong. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah, sad. Yeah. In some ways, it's really sad. And we can all sit around and have a pity party over it. And I do. I, I, I've had a lot. I've definitely gone through a lot over it. But in the end, like, I also have to get up and, and live this life that I never knew I would have, right. you know. You didn't expect it. When you have yeah. your pity parties, uh, what are who are the guests? <laughs> Just me, myself, Just, and yeah, I. Yeah. What, no, I talk to people. I mean. Like, what are the things that you think, like, I lost time or like what are some of the it depends you know lately it's just been this idea I mean I know it sounds weird but I've been having age anxiety and I realize it's because I've hit an age where I'm like oh my gosh I really didn't know I was going to live to be getting close to 40 you know like that's crazy like in my 20s, you know, it was like, oh, cool. Like, you yeah. know, I was going I'm winning through. the lottery. Like I'm Yeah, I got all time. these years. And yeah. then, you know, when we were little too, we never had contact with old people. We never had that really? like archetype of a, a old person. I mean, I'm just talking the physical yeah. Yeah. Um, elderly. features, yeah. elderly person with the wrinkly skin. They did not. They didn't exist in my world. Because we were all, all the adults were in their 20s and 30s. And then Father David was this big giant lion. Gosh, that's really, that's something I would have never thought about. I literally just realized this a few months ago because my last grandparent died. And I didn't know her, so I wasn't sad. I was just like, oh, okay, my grandmother in Sweden is now gone. And it did also make me realize like, oh, okay, so it's my parents and then it's me. You know, because they always say like when your parents are gone, you you have this whole, and I'm not there yet, but... But yeah, and then I was like, oh, everyone, I mean, most everyone, not everyone, even if it's not your grandparents, you have, you know, these old people. And and I think it puts age into perspective. Yeah. And we never had that. I would maybe like out on the streets in Thailand, maybe see. Yeah, Yeah, I was. But it was a very almost like a cinematic experience. And and these people, I mean, I don't know if you've been to Southeast Asia or a third world country, but like. Everybody the scenes, looks older. No, but the scenes that you see like in the slums, yeah. they, they look exactly like you would imagine. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't like I was close up close with these people. Yeah. It was like a scene from a movie. Right. With like an old person squatting by a yeah. a river or like a, a slum, you know. And that was it. It was very distant. It was very far away. And so I think back to my pity party. <laughs> it's kind of like where did the time go and how am I going to... I guess make the most of it at this point. You know, I think when you're younger, you're just kind of like, I mean, a little more carefree. And I finally hit that age where like time is extremely precious and like every day just feels like it's like going, going, going. going. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that the time factor was a big piece because none of us know, like we have an expectation. I think at least in America, we have an expectation that we're going to live, I don't know, between 70 and Mm-hmm, somewhat mm-hmm. something life in that range yeah your yeah. relative life expectancy so what is what do you do with time or how does it feel if you're told you have a different amount of time and apparently that makes a big difference yeah and I think some one time someone asked me and this again was as I started to get older and I was like doing other things and we weren't allowed to think about the future and we weren't allowed to make plans for the future and I think that's quite, that will affect a person, mm. you know. Um, yeah. So even 
sounds weird, but like I have a hard time making plans. <laughs> like no, it's just it's yeah. hard for me to like, okay, this I mean, I live my life and I I figure out what I need to do, but like when people have these like long term plans, I'm like, how do they do it? Right. You but know? it's in but we it's a very it's something we do that without thinking, I mean, it would literally never occur to me. Yeah, you're not, taught that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As a child. It's, it's it's interesting that it's interesting that we teach about time mm. based on mm. those things, and that time is actually a really important part of whatever society you grow up in, mm-hmm. because it's really. But it's also an illusion. I mean, yeah. a big part of yoga, healing part of yoga for me was learning to live in the moment. Yes, and. You know, whatever that meant, I mean, it, I mean, I don't know if you do yoga or, but, you know, connecting with the breath and then just be, healing can only happen in the present moment. Right. You know? Right. I mean, because the, the past and the future are both just right. in, in the mind. Right. So to actually bring your mind into the present moment and to live fully in the body, that, though, that was healing for me. Yeah. And that's how I started to like, just be okay with who I was. So you come back at 14 to California from Chicago. From Chicago. And where when did you come back to America? I was 12 years old. So leading up to 93, the predicted sequence of events that was supposed to happen according to Father David and according to the Bible, um, which I talk about in Apocalypse Child, were not happening. Right. Um, it wasn't something we talked about. I was kind of getting closer to like a teenager, so I was not so much worried about like death and I wasn't having these really kind of morbid thoughts but I you know I was becoming a teenager my body was changing I started to also think about this idea that soon I was going to be possibly forced to have sex with people that I didn't want to and so my my priorities sort of shifted and as it got closer to 93 the leader has this revelation from God to move everyone back to the west because he had moved all his followers out of the West because he believed the right. West, Europe, and North America would be the first ones to to be demolished in the apocalypse. But as that didn't come true, he was like, okay, now we all need to move back to the West. And so my family, we were going to either move to the States, where my dad's from, or to Sweden, where my mom's from. And just by a luck of the draw, <laughs> literally, they would make decisions like throwing, yeah. you know, sticks and opening books and stuff. We moved to Chicago. So we were in Chicago for two years and that's when the leader died. That's when the cult started to disintegrate. And then my, I have family out here in California. So my family eventually drove out to California. So what happened when it was, I, I, sorry, this is the only thing I've experienced. Y2K was, <laughs> what happened when it, it oh, like, Y2K. Why, like when it didn't happen, you, I don't know if you remember 92. Y2K yeah, when I they were just that. like, I think every year apart. there's an end of the world. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> and you're like waiting. So like in 93, you know, when January 1st, 1994, what were you like, what is happening? It, it was anticlimactic. Again, because I don't know if you know much about the Bible and the Revelation, there's a seven-year period that's supposed to happen. Got it. Okay. So 93, if it's, it wasn't really 93, it was 86. I was like five. Right. So I, I, I mean, that date was in mind, but as the, the what is it called, like the last seven years, basically. Yeah. Okay. Because that wasn't coming to pass, it was also like kind of slowly being pushed back. Right. So and 93 wasn't like the big moment. It was what we were really waiting for was a person. And Father David was constantly trying to predict who the Antichrist was. Uh, so he would like, he his, his, his political jargon was, I mean, just he would go off about, you know, Russian leaders and uh, American presidents and Middle Eastern leaders. And he would just 
you know, pray and have these like prophecies and trying to find who was this one world leader that was kind of come to power. And yeah, no, none of them really quite fit his predictions. Mm. So so that was where the the dissonance came, mm-hmm. you know, were you like, yeah, this isn't going to happen. Yeah, I don't know if it was like conscious or if it was just like, here we are, okay. you know. Okay. I yeah. mean, I know everyone always wants like a much better story and maybe no, one no. day I'll just start yeah. making one up. <laughs> so no, we all I, went in the bunker. Yeah, exactly. And we sat and I we realized. And, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. But no, was, I have some ideas about who the Antichrist might be. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I, went, I know. Christiana's like, don't say that. So you go back to high school. Did you have any education? Mm-mm. Like, no. Did you learn no. to read? Yeah, I learned to read very young. So okay. I, you know, my, my mom taught me to read. I was like four. Okay. Um, but we could only read the leader's propaganda um, or the Bible. So that was all I was like. I never read, you know, fairy tales or, you know, children's books, um, narratives. And we learned math, very basic math. Okay. I went to high school for a little bit, but that was a disaster. And I just, I was pretty much. But that was when you reintegrated. Mm -hmm. That's when I was starting to reintegrate. Yeah. So when you started to reintegrate and you'd had this total opposite experience, how did they pick a grade for you? Did you test? No, I was 15. So, oh, they just put you in age wise? Yeah, I just went into uh, as a freshman. My dad put us into a homeschooling program. I went there for like a year or two, and then we went to high school. And yeah, I was set to graduate a year early, but I just, there was this one class, I think it was an art class that I didn't take. So I pretty, I got all the credits for high school. I just missed by like a unit. Yeah. So my dad put us straight into college and in college we did test in. Yeah. Um, And so we went to community college and surprisingly just did really well in all our classes. So English, um, math, um, history, all those classes, I just did really well. And then I ended up getting into Berkeley, having absolutely no education as a child. (laughs) It's amazing. It's amazing. A lot of our listeners struggle with substance abuse Mm -hmm. and relate to the desire to numb out. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk about that, Mm -hmm. about wanting to numb out Mm -hmm. and using drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. and even a suicide attempt. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what, you know, what was going on then and what started that? I can't even remember like a first time that I like did something, whether it was drink alcohol or, you know, take a drug. It was just sort of, I moved back to the U.S., to California, I moved to California. And yeah, around 15, 16, maybe I started to hang out with the crowd that was doing all the bad stuff. So I started drinking, started smoking pot, did a few other things, but I never, thankfully didn't get hooked on like speed or, you know, any of that, the white stuff, which I, I just, I'm not into that stuff. (laughs) I would go to parties, I would take hallucinogens, but I think the day-to-day high school was really rough socially, and my sister and I, my twin sister Tamar, who I talk about in my book, um, we just needed to numb. We wanted to like kind of forget where we are, what we were doing. It was right after I realized I had grown up in a cult. I don't even think I could cope with it. I don't even think I would have gotten through that period without numbing out, to be honest. And that's actually something we talk about a lot, which is that you know, alcohol and drugs are the solution and then they become the problem, right? Yeah. So they're originally the solution and help yeah, us. Yeah, they're kind of like, it's. It, I think we take them either to feel deeply or to not feel at all. Yeah. And then it's kind of, for me, the real healing, like I talked briefly about, I don't know if we were on the air yet, but um, yoga, to be honest. Yeah, so you, so you, how, that you started, when did you stop 
your substance abuse? Abuse, I'm probably when I started going to college. And okay. I think, again, my attention shifted. And I, I have my own, like, ideas on all that. Like, my ways of getting over things, I, I don't believe in stopping thing like stopping like if you're in if you're addicted to something the substance is not the problem and I think that's a big I mean I'm no counselor I'm not like (laughs) don't take my advice medically but I did have my own addiction to something and I had to figure out psychologically what that was what was I avoiding and what was I numbing you know and that was a much deeper, much longer process than if I was actually one day able to be like, oh, let's stop this. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. and thankfully the things I was doing were things like alcohol. And I even also had, a, I don't talk about this at all, but I had like an eating disorder, body image. And so for me, it was a, about figuring out what I was trying to escape and coming to terms with that. What were you trying to escape? Honestly, when I really went deep into it, I began to realize I was escaping my potential. And I was never taught that I could be anything growing up. Mm-hmm. I was never asked what I wanted to be growing up. And to all of a sudden be faced with this entire life ahead of me as a teenager. And regardless of how difficult or how weird my background was, I, I knew that I had inside of me a lot of potential, you know, because regardless of what your external circumstances are, I think deep inside, like we're all the same. And I just had a really vivid awareness of it. And I was terrified of it. Um, I did know I wanted to write for sure. Like just pen to paper to me felt really natural. I liked people a lot. I liked talking to people. I noticed also I had this sort of like almost like a gift when I would talk to people, you know, and I, when I would, would, would speak, this wasn't when I was a teenager, but as I started to like integrate more into the world, like I had a way of being able to like even speak publicly. So I think my abuse was my fear. It was my way of just not having to face certain things, not having to do also the hard work. And honestly, the real kind of abandoning of my addiction came when I started writing my book. I could no longer mm-hmm. indulge in that. I mean, writing is extremely healing. Yeah. Yeah, you can't you can't not face what it is you you need to face when you write. And so I always say you can lie to someone, you can lie to yourself, but you can't lie to a blank page. Mm-hmm. You can't sit and put words on, on the page that aren't true. So you felt like... Ah, that's really interesting. So you felt mm-hmm. like writing your story specifically. I think coming to terms with the demons in my mind, honestly. Writing what was in your mind. Yeah. We, well, yeah. Well, my mind was my limitation, you know, because that's what you learn in yoga is like the right. body. Well, the body has its limitations too, but the mind is really what's going to take you to those deep, dark places. Like our bodies are so resilient. That's very true. They are. I mean, I, I've studied this. Again, it's not, not formal training, so I'm not in any way like some kind of doctor able to prescribe things, but... It was like a self-study. Yeah. You know? And so when you write, especially when I, once I chose to write out my narrative, it was like there was no, no avoiding anything. Like it was all out in the open, but I also wanted to do something. So it was that, the cathartic act of kind of crafting something into something else, right? There's like, I don't know if you've heard this one before, but there's no creation or destruction. There's only transformation. Like you can't create or destroy energy. You can only transform it. Right. You know, so like I think when we're addicted, we're we're just trying to destroy something, but you're not going to be able to change that into creation. You're going to have to transform it into something. So I think that's 
that was sort of what I realized was like I, I, I couldn't run away from it. I couldn't get over it by running away from it. I was going to have to mm-hmm. turn it into something productive. Yes. And that was my book. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. And and Tamar, did she go through something similar? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually both started yoga together. You did, And um, how old were you when you did that? We started when we were 19. Okay. Yeah, so almost 20 years ago. And yeah, we both had... We both loved it. We both had similar but also different reactions to it. And yeah, I think it was healing for both of us for sure. How did you just guys decided to take a class one day or how did that come about? We took a class in college. Yeah, we took a, it was just like a really ancient practice yoga. But, and then we started reading books. And I think, again, it was, I I started practicing by myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I started going to studios. um, That's actually when I met Patrice. And, um, and then, you know, other teachers would tell us like, oh, you should become teachers. So we actually stopped going to college. We did not go to Berkeley. I don't talk about this in my book, but <laughs> instead we, we pursued yoga. And that was great. Really? great. Yeah, it was a great time in my life. I, would, I traveled, you know, I did, you know, did a lot of teaching. Um, so that was about 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So you guys, I mean, it was a, you felt that it was important to follow that. It was, yeah, it was like a lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was about more than just physical health. It was like physical, spiritual, mental, emotional health. And I, again, I did a lot of reading. So it wasn't just like going in and practicing something. It was, again, understanding, I think from talking about addiction, it's like the desires of your soul. Right. I think our souls are are hungry for something. Again, this is how Father Davis started his whole thing, you know, like these people were hungry for something. Right. They wouldn't have done what they did if there wasn't a deep dissatisfaction. And that's what I'm more interested in knowing about other than like the sensational like, oh, my God, how did these people do this? Yeah. Um, so I guess as a person, just me as a human being, I needed to understand what this thing was that I grew up in, but also where I was now. And right. to me, it was the same. It was the soul's yearning, you know, and and yoga, anything that's kind of a little more ancient, I think, because we live in such a disconnected world, like yeah. we're c- completely cut off from our true nature. And I'm able to, to reconnect, like when I study, I took a Native American literature class. Any type of connection, I think, is healing. I think connection to nature, connection to a healthy connection to another person, a connection to yourself. So I think that's where like spiritual, you know, mental, psychological, emotional healing come in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you're talking so much about your recovery is so similar. I mean, if not precisely the same as what it takes to get sober, Mm -hmm. where basically Mm -hmm. you are yearning for, and you have a, a, we call it a void, Mm -hmm. an unmet need. Mm -hmm. There's something that you're not getting basically. Mm -hmm. And you have to numb out in order to deal with that. And of course that's a Mm -hmm. self-destructive path, which leads you to be incredibly miserable Mm -hmm. um, by virtue of all the things that come with it. And then getting sober, it's about putting down this, the substance, mm-hmm. the anesthesia, and that emptiness, right, and that you filled right. up, filled up with all the stuff, that was, yeah. yeah, filled up with, and and then a lot of the time, what we do in treatment, we'd have people write. This is what I was interested. We have people do their timeline or write their narrative, write mm-hmm. their life story, mm-hmm. and put pen to paper that mm-hmm. way and figure out kind of where they're, what's their, where are they starting? Like, what are yeah. my beliefs? Cause I don't think we know. I don't right. think, you know, until you do start that doing that writing and that work, I'm not sure we know what our beliefs are because yeah. we just act them out on a, you know, on a daily basis. And then finding a spiritual 
soul-fulfilling path or activity Mm -hmm. or, you know, something Mm -hmm. that allows us to not have that void and continue and also community. Yeah, and connection. Yeah, Yeah, and connection. Connection in the community. I mean, isolation is as damaging as Mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think also, like, I guess the question comes, like, where is this void coming from? Like, why do we even have it in the first place? And that's a question, like, probably can't even answer whether it's, like, psychological, whether it's something that happened when you were a child. Right. Whether it's genetic. Um, But I think there is also a factor of, like, we we live in this very disconnected and overstimulated world. Like, for me, I just have to shut off. Like, I don't do a lot of, like, practice of anything, but because I did it for so long, I do have these little, like, just little techniques that I, whether it's connecting with my breath or I, I, I meditate, I don't meditate like religiously, but like I, I have to shut off the world or else I would go absolutely insane. Yeah. Like, yeah, I would not be able to handle it, you know, and I think it, it can be extremely overwhelming. Um, but I think that's, that's a reason why a lot of people want to numb out, you know, especially if you're, and, and I talk about this in the chapter where I, I do attempt suicide. That was a very difficult chapter to write. And I was like, how do I approach this? You know, and I, I read other writers who had, you know, written about attempts. What do you mean approach it? Like, how do I approach it as a writer? Because, you know, it happened and then you choose as a writer how you're going to approach it. Like how, how to frame it or how to talk, or like how it's to painful write to about talk. It. No, how to write, like, I mean, I wish I, I should have brought the book with me, but. I have it. I, yeah, I could read a quick little chapter of it, a quick little it's excerpt. on my. <clears throat> so this is, again, it's, it's when I, I, I give a little, like, I guess, narrative about the decision to commit or to, to attempt suicide. And yeah, it started with this numbing. I think I, I say something like, um, I'll start here, actually. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read a few passages. Um, I started to play a game with myself in which I attempted to see how much I could drink and still maintain my sanity. Even when the world around me started to spin and I slipped in and out of blackness, there was a center inside of me that said, don't lose it. You got this. Don't let anyone know how far you've gone. I hid my belligerence. I masked my intoxication. I developed a sense of self-control, and it was my newfound identity. It made me feel proud. It made me feel invincible. Since I had control over nothing else in my life, at least I could control my wild drinking. So then I talk a little bit about how I would, you know, basically go and have these drunken rages with these friends, and then one day I get into a fight with this girl, and I just decide... You know, this is too much for me. So I decide that I'm going to take something. So I find a bottle of aspirin. And then here's the part where I talk about how do I approach this? How do I really talk about this? I'm not just going to recount what happened. So this is where I, I, this is how I approach it. There's a euphoria that accompanies the ultimate choice, which is death. There are color and light. There's acceptance. People who want to die are not in that moment depressed. They are very much alive maybe too alive. Their physical senses are heightened. There is so much beauty in, say, the color of a traffic light, the sound of a lawnmower in the early afternoon, or a song that comes on the radio at the perfect time. Such beauty fills you with equal parts dread and euphoria, so that there is no difference between the two. It's pure feeling, pure sound, energy, light, vibration. There is no judgment. That's what wanting to die feels like. It's indefinable. It's beautiful. Some even say it's art. So 
I think what I mean by that is the idea of empathy and that people who go to those dark places, they might actually be the people that feel very deeply and that's why mm -hmm. they have to numb, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that's, that's how I want to approach it, like to let people know it's not when, when people choose to want to do that, it's not because they're sad or depressed or bad. Maybe they're actually the really sensitive people oh, yeah. who are just feeling everything around yeah. them, you know. So I kind of that's what I wanted to highlight um, yeah. in that chapter. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's 100% accurate that they are, you know, feel that the, it's too much. It becomes mm -hmm. too much and are unable to to deal with, you know, that this is the best that they've waited out and this they feel that this is the better mm -hmm. solution, mm -hmm. um, the final solution. Mm -hmm. Do you see a having grown up in a world that had a lot less stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, do you see a difference between, you know, what that was like for you and, and behaviors that created and, and children today? I don't know. I, mean, I was talking to my sister. One thing we noticed is that we're really physically healthy <laughs> because we were not allowed to eat junk food. <laughs> we like grew up on no sugar, uh, vegetables, you know, fish, so soy protein, yeah. basically rice. And we were talking to each other. She, my sister, she's like, do you notice that everyone gets allergies? She's like, I never get allergies. Like, we, we don't get sick. Yeah. And, and anyways, again, I'm no, not a medical doctor, so I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. But it's like, yeah, isolation and being cut off from the world may have affected me in one way, but also it may have affected me, yeah. you know, in a good way. Um, but yeah, like I wasn't allowed to watch anything. I wasn't allowed to, you know, watch TV or take in any, you know, form of media. Um, so yeah, in some ways, like I never... When people talk about certain TV shows or certain things that I feel like I should have a reference point right. for, I still just simply do not. And I'll never adjust to that. But yeah, in some ways, I think also that sensitivity to stimulation, um, which I, I think what happened is I think this world is overstimulating for any, every, anyone. Yeah. But to be almost incubated from it and yeah. not allowed to experience it as a child when you're forming just gives me a much higher sensitivity to it. Right. So that's why I have to do the things that just give me a moment to sort of shut off the world, you know, and find that place within me that's always there. So you see those of us who've grown up in this society as having a much higher threshold for the stimuli? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> that's yeah. a good question. But at least they're used to it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. No, I just, it's just a, you know, it, it's a, again, it's a social experiment. Like yeah. what happens when you do this yeah. and how do people, yeah. um, I, I just wonder about that. You're talking about the void that, you mm -hmm. know, when 
what people are really struggling with ultimately, which is, again, coming back to the substances or whatever the outside thing is that we're focused on is what's filling the mm-hmm. void that we're, mm-hmm. you know, that that feeling and that when we take that away, mm-hmm. we're dealing with the pain of slowing down and being slowing down. And yeah. Being, being in our bodies. Yeah, I don't like the term withdrawal because that sounds like negative. I think negative connotations of anything. It's it's a bummer. I'm yeah, gonna, I'm I don't tell you. I don't it is like a it. Like it's it's almost again. It's speaking from a perspective. I come from at it from like to me, meaning of language is extremely important. So like certain words just carry negative connotations with them. And I'm sure you would know this, but like I, I'm I'm guessing in like recovery the recovery genre or whatever you want to call it, there's there's certain things that we talk about. And it's almost like, why are we calling it withdrawal? It's not withdrawal. It's awareness, you know? You're becoming aware of something that's there. It's not, again, about that substance. It's like whatever it was that you were trying to fill, you know? So I think with the withdrawal piece, there typically is a physical Actual experience. physical, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, I think we call it withdrawal being negative because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, in my experience, you know, you're vomiting, crapping your pants, yeah. your yeah. skin's on fire, your eyes are watering uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. So it feels like a very negative yeah. experience as far yeah. as you know, experiences go. I'm going yeah. to put that in the negative category. Yeah. But I do. And the other thing is you, we talked about the the bonding, the community, the, the connection. Connection. Yeah. See, when I was using, mm-hmm. I was connect. My connection was to that substance. Mm-hmm. I, I took away the connection with people mm-hmm. because people were unsafe and unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't in control of the people around me. Mm-hmm. And I knew that. And life had shown me that very, mm-hmm. very clearly. Mm-hmm. But I could be, I knew exactly what vodka, heroin, cocaine was going to do every time, oh, more or less. I mm. Even when it was bad, mm-hmm. I knew at least, even if it's bad, I knew what yeah. it was. And so for me, I had a relationship with my substances. Wow. So when you took those away from me, I was losing the only connection that I had during that period of time. And so it felt like I was div- like divorcing something. It felt like I was losing a life partner. I was losing this I was losing a cane that mm. I I needed to walk. You know, it, it was it was an, an appendage. Mm. So for me that void that what what started as the the desire to numb out, the desire to cope became a deep relationship. A connection yeah. 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 Because that's what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I created that with that, with something. And eventually that connection was taking me all the way down to the bottom. Right. right. So eventually the solution to all my problems became my biggest problem. Mm-hmm. So when I got rid of that, when I, when I stepped away from that, there was a lot of emotional baggage mm-hmm. and pain to deal with there. And there was definitely a lot of physical, mm-hmm. you know, rem- from removing them. But then I dealt with exactly what you were talking about, mm-hmm. which is this empty vessel that I had been filling mm-hmm. with chemicals for mm-hmm. so long that I mean, to be honest with you, I don't even, you know, I'm I'm actually going through some, you know, doing some more recovery stuff and I'm back in this place where I'm experiencing some of the things that I experienced when I first got sober. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm feeling. Like I'm having Mm -hmm. these conversations. I remember, you know, getting sober and be like, like, well, how do you feel when you do this or whatever it was? And I 
seriously couldn't connect. I couldn't even connect with my body. Mm. So learning, I actually did a lot of yoga for a long mm-hmm. time, and that's how I know Patrice. Mm-hmm. I got really, really into Bikram yoga. Yeah, and, that's what I taught. And so for me, Bikram yoga, and I'll say this is the one thing mm-hmm. I've ever experienced on the planet. It, unfortunately, it's 90 minutes, and it requires a lot of showering. So I, it, it's hard to fit it into my life these days. But Bikram yoga did something for me that no other yoga mm-hmm. practice has done. Mm-hmm. It forced me to not think about anything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but what we were going to do next and how to get the hell out of that room. Yeah. And eventually I learned to love that. Mm-hmm. But you're, it's, it's so hot that my brain can't function. Yeah. And for me, as someone who needed a break and needs a break from my brain, it was the only break mm-hmm. I've ever gotten that was healthy and completely shut it off, that wasn't making grocery lists. I mean, I could do Ishtanga and still have may, be making grocery lists. Mm-hmm. I don't care how out of breath I am. But you're in a Bikram yoga class? Forget it. There is yeah. nothing other than your sheer survival for 90 minutes that you are thinking about. Even when you get really good, you're only thinking about the pose mm-hmm. because it's so intense. I almost – that's that was my experience with yeah. it. And, you know, it got that – it gave me that relief from my head. And yeah. as I need relief from my head. Yeah. I need it to slow down. Yeah. And, and so those are the things that I've practiced. But you – You're right in that I had to do the writing first. Yeah. I had to do the right, like that was a big piece of it too, was slowing down, but also reshaping the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, as you were saying all that, I was thinking another thing that I kind of would realize on my healing journey was, because I I think I was always fascinated with the mind. I think because I grew up in this environment where basically my mind was taken from me. Right. Which is the, I would always, it's funny, this sounds weird, but like I would almost not be jealous, but when I would hear stories of other abuse, I would be like, well, at least you had this and that. Like, to, to, to have your mind taken from you, right. it's like the only real thing we have as humans right. is this power to make decisions right. or have a will of something, whether or not you can actually execute that will. And so psych- I'm interested in psychological Abuse, and I've said this before in interviews, but psychological abuse is something we talk about emotional abuse, physical abuse, you know, sexual abuse, even financial abuse. But like psychological abuse, it's something that's saved for like thrillers and like movies because it's uh, I call it the invisible disability, you know. Mm. But I think, again, I also had that same reaction to being forced into a situation where I was so in the moment that I could not think of anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm onto something here. I think a big one reason why we might get into things like addictive substances is because we're unsatisfied inside. And like back when we were hunters and gatherers and like, you know, as human beings, we had this survival, survival mode to us. We had to live in a place where we weren't able to, we, 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 couldn't think about things because we were just doing things. We were much more instinctual. But our minds want very difficult things to handle. And if we don't give give it that, we're going to go into these cycles of of substance abuse, you know? So yeah, I think I think it's I think one thing I learned was how kind of magnificent the mind is. Oh yes. You know? Um but we often, again, with stimuli stimuli and like you know, just shutting it off or, you know, being connected to the TV or being connected to social media or even being connected to toxic relationships. 
again, I'm preaching to the choir, but we we just find attachments for the mind when right. really what the mind wants to be doing is very, very difficult things that where we can't think where you're in, you know, that zone they talk about the zone. Like, and that's what yeah. I did when I wrote, like it was such a got difficult thing. Zone, yeah. I got into the zone that I literally, it was in the moments when I was there, it was just like everything was completely out into the periphery. And I was just in that zone. I think that as humans, we live for that. And most of us don't ever get there. You know, we might work, but do we really like work where yeah. our souls, mind, body, everything yeah. working together? And yoga helps. Yoga yoga's like, here, we're going to give you that tool. We're going to put you in your body. Yeah. We're going to, you know, shut that 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 chattery, that the monkey mind, shut it off. Yep. So you can do something that's very difficult. So you can get in touch with all your emotions. Yeah. But then it's to do something else, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting journey. I mean, and you've lived, you were saying you've lived a whole adult life, mm-hmm. you know, since this childhood. I mean, it's actually been more years out of it mm-hmm. than you than you were yeah. in it, right? Yeah, now it has been. Yep. And just past that mark. Do you struggle with the identity of, I'll just, where I'm thinking of, where I'm coming from is, you know, I have this whole, <laughs> I, I like you had a, uh, you know, a very interesting first, you know, childhood and, and trauma and drug mm-hmm. abuse and all this stuff. Like there's a lot that went on there. Right. And I talk about it a lot. I'm sober, mm-hmm. you know, 13 years, so on and so forth, but I'm, I, I'm now out of it longer than I was in it. Yeah. And so I'm actually, I actually have a whole other set of things about my person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like I'm not just a former alcoholic drug mm-hmm. addict. Like I actually, you know, went to school and went to UCLA and studied political science and mm-hmm. like, I've done all these other things. Right. But that's the thing that defines us. Do you ever struggle with, you know, in your situation, you have written a book about it and it's much more exotic than Mm -hmm. just being a drunk. (laughs) Do you ever, you know, go like, okay, enough with this as (laughs) as my identity? All the time. Yeah. 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 It's hard because, you know, I have, so I wrote this book. Um, It took me 12 years to write it. I started it when I was 23 and then I wrote it. And honestly, the best part was writing it, you know, and also yeah. discovering things. And I, in some ways I was a self-taught writer. I never in many learned ways. it. Yeah. <laughs> I never way. learned it traditionally, yeah. but I did know there was something there. I, I also just came to terms with the fact that here I am, I have language, I have memories. What am I going to do with it? You know? So the writing of it again was very cathartic, very healing. And then I got into the publishing of it and that was a whole nother, you know, journey. And a lot, a lot of different things. But, and then once it came out, there has been a, a lot of media interest. And I've done a lot of things since last March. What's the biggest thing you've done? I was on Dr. Oz. Okay. Um, I was, I've been covered by that's, a bunch that's, of, that's, yeah. That'll do it. Yeah, I've been covered by a bunch of different outlets from Fox News to Nightline to more tabloidy stuff like Daily Mail, TV, and and then just small stuff. I like small stuff better too. You know, I like this because it's an angle. What I don't like doing is just sitting down and recounting my life because it's like I've already done it. You well, know? that's why you wrote the book. I mean, not yeah, why, yeah, but that's exactly. what, that's yeah, what the book There are some offers. times when I want to just say I wrote it in my book. Right. Go look yeah. it up, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but again, I think the, the cure for that is going to be to write another book, <laughs> you know, because then there's going to be it. a new conversation. And yeah, I'll be more mature. Like some of the, literally some of the stuff I wrote. Right. Because you started when you were Like 10 years ago. Yeah. I don't even, I, I don't even know. Yeah. I still think it's like when I go back and read it, I'm like, yeah, this is, yeah, it's 100% true. It's everything I said in there is exactly right. what I felt, what I knew. And yeah, um, yeah I stand by every single word. 
but I'd like to write something a little more mature, maybe a little more analytical, a little bit more let's let's really talk about how and why as opposed to just what happened, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's what um, fascinates me because I, I read it and I was like, I had all these questions about, you know, the different aspects and the the mm-hmm. the psychology of it. But mm-hmm. that's just, you know, I'm curious about people's stories and really understanding like what's behind it. Yeah. There's a lot of... I, I actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the seven tribes of Israel. Mm, no, is 12 like, tribes of is Israel. Is that like a biblical thing? It's 12 tribes of Israel. It's a, it's or is that a, a, it's a cult. Oh, um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and one of my best friends joined. Oh, And it was really tribes. traumatic. Where are they? They're everywhere. Oh, really? I mean. Are they big? I think so, yeah. They seem very big. They have mm-hmm. a lot of different locations and mm-hmm. it was really traumatic for me and like you know it was so funny I was saying just to see her get into yeah, it really yeah, it was really traumatic to watch it happen to someone and she just got totally brainwashed yes Is she's still in it yeah really and I, I have contact yeah she just had oh. identical twin boys oh interesting um it was really it was like one of the most painful things really? because because you for, lost her I lost number one I lost her and and she had a daughter who I felt very responsible yeah. for because she because we went to rehab together mm-hmm. and we were we were seventeen when we went to rehab together and she got out and she got pregnant by a guy who was not even close to being able to help right. and so I was very involved in mm-hmm. her daughter's life and I think she was twenty when she had her daughter and so I saw this group of people entice, for lack of a better word, her into this Mm. situation. And I'm not even going to say that I think they're bad people. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not even, that's not my impression. But it was, she gave up everything she owned. It was, it was, I mean, it was very, very similar to Mm -hmm. what you're talking about. They move around a lot, Mm -hmm. not quite nomadic, but, you know. um, And in some ways, they're a commune that seems like a, yeah, that seems like a wonderful thing, right? Like, she was telling me how. They take care of each other. Yeah. And that's how people get stuck and they can't leave. Like, that's what people don't think people don't understand. She's all the babies now. Yeah, you start having kids and you're cut off and you're Mm -hmm. you're basically living a whole different life. And I don't think a lot of the adults could even leave even if they want no to. no she, I mean she all of so she has all these children now and you know she they the the community pays for each yeah. other and they and they I mean in some ways it's amazing they have like sit you for you know you have six other moms to help you yeah you know race so which like, is in some ways how it should be like totally how it used should be. to be much yeah. more tribal as yes. human species and now we're so yes. isolated so you know, isolated and like expected to do things all on our own and you know it's 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 difficult it's not what we're you know no not how, how it and to I be. mean I think I see that so some of it I see as like yeah that makes a lot of sense I mm-hmm. wish I had that and then the stuff where the real brain like there some seriously crazy stuff and and it, crazy in the sense that that's not my, my reality and so I had to come to terms with because she took her daughter and that was really hard for me mm-hmm. I had to come to terms with this idea that my that each of our normal is based on a belief system and a a society that was created. Yeah, and that I I came to this point where I was like, do I want her to be happy or do I want her to live the way I want her to live? Mm -hmm. And just all the same ideas. They're very they change their names to biblical Mm -hmm. names. They only you know learn through the Bible. Like very very similar to what you're talking about and. Um, it was a really interesting kind of psychological experiment for me to question, like, am I wrong or yeah. are they wrong or are maybe we yeah. both right? Like, yeah. maybe it's just a different way to live. 
Um, There does come a point where you have to just let go. A hard thing for me was understanding that the choices people make are not my responsibility. Right. That was one of the biggest things. And also realizing that I couldn't save people. I mean, that's one thing I still carry with me. It it might make me seem a little cold sometimes, but it was, first of all, a survival thing. Yeah. I mean, I I simply, if I actually cared for every single person that I wanted to care for, I simply would not be here. I I would have just completely fallen, you know? Yeah. And then again, plus we were taught, you know, that we we were supposed to be saving everyone. And um, it's a tall order. (laughs) I know. So I immediately I knew like, okay, I'm not responsible for anyone. And then again, it became understanding the power of agency. Something we talk about, I I learned kind of a more articulate way to talk about it is in rhetoric, we talk about agency, like as humans, like that the power to like be your own person. And everyone has that. Like I've even, honestly, some of my siblings are are really not doing well right now, but like I come from the same place as them and I made difficult choices. And I'm not saying like I'm in any way better than you, but you have the same agency. You know, maybe you reacted to things a little differently. You know, maybe you need more help. I wish I could give you all the help that you need, but that would sacrifice, you know, my own need for my own survival at this point, you know? So I had to learn quite quickly to that everyone is responsible for their actions, you know, and and we do we do go. I think when you've been in dark places, you get you do develop compassion, you know, mm-hmm. for people who have been through those dark places. And I don't know, it's a fine line between understanding, but also knowing that, you know, you've chosen the life that you've you're living, which can sometimes be a very difficult thing to uh, come face to face with. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is like. What do you mean I've chosen this? What yeah. do you mean? You know, there's a whole study around thoughts become things. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts become mm-hmm. things and you're, that is you create your reality that way through your thinking. And, you know, if that's the case, then we are creating often creating realities that we think we don't want, but because we think about them so much, mm-hmm. we create them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when I first learned about this, mm-hmm. about what it meant to create my own reality because I wanted a different one than I had. I mean, it's so hard to change thoughts that happen automatically. I'm sure you went through mm-hmm. that. Like just things on that come to you automatically. Like, okay, I don't want it. That's not, you know, redirecting. Well, that's where like that whole concept of the monkey mind comes in yeah. where you really are in control of your thoughts, but you just have to take time to slow down and become right. aware of them because right. the mind is going to take you all over the place, you know, and there's, it's going to be this constant chatter, you know, and, Thoughts will come in and then you can choose whether to acknowledge them or, you know, push push them aside. But, yeah, there are some things that, yeah, I, I find myself even recently just thinking things where I'm like, or yeah, I shouldn't be thinking yeah, that. Yeah, like get it out. Get it out. Yeah. yeah. My um, in AA, we talk about it as the itty bitty shitty committee. Yeah. Um, you know, sounds and, about right. Yeah. Or, or, you know, just this like constant the pity, the pity party. Yeah. The, the pity, pity, party. pity party. Yeah. It's just uh, the constant chatter. And it's hard. It's It really is. You know, yes, we do have agency and it's hard to change thoughts that have been ingrained. It's, mm-hmm. you know, to change, like you are talking about changing thoughts you have had for 20 years or whatever yeah. it is and trying to redirect them. And I mean, you obviously it's successful, but yeah, you have, it's, it's, it's definitely a hard thing to do and takes a lot, like a commitment to wanting yeah. to change it. I want to just touch on one last thing. One thing that comes up when you're telling us, when you're telling your life story, any, mm-hmm. any of us are telling our life stories are the people that are in the story, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's their story too. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, sometimes when I tell stories about things that went on in my life, I'm telling the story of decisions my parents made that they regret. Mm-hmm. And that and and if I'm telling them publicly, you know, yes, it's my reality and my truth, but I'm also exposing them. And, you know, there's a there's a you know, each one of us approaches that decision differently. How did you and do you approach the decision to include your parents' decisions and what happened and, mm-hmm. you know, their stories into yours? And has that ever come up or been an issue? I think the first thing was to understand what had happened. So when I started to, like, think about my childhood and then, I, you know, it led to doing research on, you know, the children of God and cults in general and then understanding why these people joined it. I Once I understood what happened, it was very hard for me to hold a whole, bu- whole lot of animosity towards them. When it came to writing about it, I never asked permission from anyone. I mean, once the book was going to come out, I did sort of, I think I let my, I think I let my parents, I did let my mom read it. My mom read it. My dad just doesn't really read much. But um, I let them know like, hey, if there's anything you have trouble with, let me know. And this is the last chance to change right. it. And my mom absolutely loved the book. I think in some ways she understood, you know, because she never knew. I mean, they knew what happened. They Now they, they acknowledge that it was a cult, but to read it from my perspective as a child and to see all those memories, you yeah. know, I think was in some ways healing for her. Um, but one one of my intentions when I wrote this book, I mean, there were a lot of different things that you have to think about, you know, when you write a book. But one of the things was I'm not telling anyone else's story. So I, regardless of what people might take from it, it's not like an expose. It's not like me trying to be the voice for all these right, people. Right, Although right, right. in some ways maybe I am because I did tell this story. But I had to really tell my experience of what happened and stay true to that. And that was, you know, my intention behind it. So do your parents have any it it sounds like they are okay with the decision they made or they've come to terms with it? What? Um, I think over time they began to acknowledge more and more what had happened. And when they start to see certain, you know, outcomes of some of their children, you know, it's it's made them realize, and I, I honestly, the way I look at it, they've also had their own fair bit of suffering that in some ways was like the consequence of, of how they chose to, to raise us. And again, that's their life and it's hard. I mean, again, if I let myself sink into too much empathy, I'm going to be a mess. So yeah. I can feel things and I can understand, but I think you also have to at some point, you know, understand that everyone chose their life and, you know, but, you know, as, as time gets old, as time as I'm getting older, I'm also, I'm going through certain experiences where, you know, I've come to understand there are things that happen that feel out of your control at the time, or there might be people that come into your life that prey on you, you know? And so it's, it's giving me more compassion that, again, this control thing that I think coming from an environment where I simply had no control to becoming a young adult and trying so hard to control things and now I'm coming to a place where I'm realizing that I have no control over many things. And so just learn to deal with that. And what does that mean? You know, and I think dropping a lot of my ideas of perfectionism, I think yeah. I come with, I think a lot, especially women do that. Like I want to be good at everything I do and I want to do so much, but I'm starting to realize what I'm, I might be sacrificing, you know, for that. Or maybe even sabotaging certain relationships or potential relationships because I'm so focused on, you know, being this or being, you know, doing things perfectly or doing things that seem impossible, you know. 
So, so yeah, it's, it's all a process. I think healing, recovery, all of it is a process and it's something, this is what most people don't know. They think recovery, it's something you do and then you're done, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's an everyday yeah. thing it's, yeah. every single day. Yep. Every, every single day you have yeah. to, you get, you get the opportunity to make a new decision and yeah. whether it's your negative thinking, yeah. it's your, you know, the decision for empathy, how far you go in, in, uh, in or to drink a certain green drink. Instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Another exactly. Drink. exactly. <laughs> or to eat um, something healthy yeah. instead of something that's not um, healthy. In Al-Anon, they say, which is for family and friends and loved ones about mm-hmm. spouses of alcoholics, it's talk about detaching with mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like a lot of the stuff you're talking about with your family and you know, is like loving someone without hurting yourself through, yeah, through yeah. the interaction. I had to learn those boundaries quite yeah. early on. Again, yeah. this is not something I talk too much. Maybe one day I'll write about it. But like I had to learn how to stand in one place and see what was happening and to have, I mean, again, I think some, you have empathy, which is a human thing, but you can't let yourself get overly yeah. involved as, as much as it doesn't. I mean, if, if I was able to help every single person I possibly wanted to, yeah, I would do it. (laughs) But I simply don't have the time, the resources, you know what I mean? Like, so again, it's that whole, I always say, you know, put your mask on before you help even the child, you know, save yourself and then save the child. Yeah. Because you can't help anybody if you're not. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, it's a huge thing. And, and if you, if you overdo it, then you'll, you you know, you're everybody's sick. Everybody's, you know, totally depleted. And I think, yeah, I, I, I do yoga very moderately now, but I, I still do it. And I do think that your own wellness and your own recovery is your gift to everyone else. Yes. It's not selfish. No. If it is, then it's in a good way. But it really is true. And I've learned, I've known that too, like the better off I am and I'm feeling and I'm doing, I'm better for everyone else around me. Yeah. You know, lately I've just been extremely stressed. So that's just a whole different story. But, but yeah, um, taking, taking that time, which again, we don't always have. It ends up multiplying, you know. Yeah, that's the part I struggle with, which Mm -hmm. is like finding, like literally finding the hours. But that's, you know, modern motherhood where you're just, you know, expected to work like you don't have kids and expected to mom like you don't have a job. Yeah, And uh, luckily I have an amazing support team. I'm in no way, (laughs) I'm in no way a victim at any level here. But it is, it's, it's really, and I'm also in school and it's mm-hmm. just, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. It's really, and I, I, I want to be good at everything I do too. The pressure. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. pressure can make you crack. Yeah. For sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm really glad that we got to talk about, you know, the healing portion of it mm-hmm. in a little bit of a different angle mm-hmm. on this. Cause I think that's really helpful. And I think even though your experience was so different from many of ours, that the feelings were actually. Yeah very similar to many people just who felt isolated, who felt disconnected, who felt like they came from another world. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of people can relate to that. And so the recovery and the yoga and having something, you know, a lot of the time we talk about, um, (laughs) we talk about like, you know, pray, meditate, um, you know, different, write this, write that, where like these ideas of things to recover, whereas, with yoga, what I love about using it as a recovery tool is that it's it's really straightforward. Like you go to a yoga class, yeah. like, whereas some like I was like, well, I don't know how to meditate. What do yeah. I just sit here and think <laughs> about nothing? It. And well, there's a rule: yeah. feeling down, move around; feeling great, meditate. Ooh. So if you if you if you're I didn't know this rule. Yeah, if you're feeling like lethargic, if you're feeling gross, yeah, exercise. 
And then once you're, you don't meditate until you, that's what the whole that's yoga, so yeah, the whole yoga, um, the physical part of yoga, yeah. yoga is multi-layered, right, right, right. but the, the whole point of the physicality is to get yourself in a state where you can meditate. But if you're feeling like <gasps> crap, you, you simply can't meditate. Your mind will not settle down to meditate. That's really, yeah. that's really cool. I found the only way. So it's I, okay to go for a yeah. walk or a jog yeah. or whatever it is. The only way I was able to meditate was through like, or find anything spiritual. My first experience with that was in yoga. Yeah. Like that was the only way because I was moving and mm-hmm. and it felt spiritual and everybody else seemed to be very spiritual and <laughs> and there were a lot of, you know, bells and, and ancient sounds going on. Yeah. So I was like, this has to be what spirituality feels yeah. like. And I'm hot. So it feels yeah. spiritual. So I mean that that was my first ability to tap into anything in there. And then it's it's grown and changed yeah. since then. But I love yeah. that as a tool because I do think it's a really helpful tool in, mm-hmm. in all of our recovery. So yeah. So um, I just want to let people know your book, uh, Apocalypse Child. It can be found by Floor Edwards, can be found on Amazon. Where else can they find it? Is that the best place to buy it? Amazon's probably the best. Okay. Um, I know it's at some bookstores, but okay. um, not all of them. Okay. But uh, also IndieBound, uh, Barnes & Noble um, websites. Okay, yeah. So, so go online, purchase Apocalypse Child. Floor also did the audio book for it. She mm-hmm. read the whole thing herself painstakingly. So please uh, go check that out and um, they can follow you on Instagram. On Instagram, it's Floor Edwards Author. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Twitter, I think I'm Floor C. Edwards and Facebook, Floor Edwards Author as well. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, Thank you. Go check it out. Thank you so much. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 